Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. I'm Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we're taking an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Our candid conversation today is with Professor Eugene Volok. If you're a lawyer or you are interested in the law, you probably know Eugene's name, or at the very least, you've heard of his popular Washington Post legal blog, The Volok Conspiracy, which by almost every account, is one of the most popular legal blogs in the country. However, if you've lived under a legal rock or for some reason haven't had occasion to run across Eugene's name before, I want to give you some brief background. Eugene is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA, where he teaches a number of things, including free speech law, tort law, religious freedom law, and church-state relations law. He also supervises the very influential UCLA Scott and Cyan Bannister First Amendment Clinic. By all accounts, Eugene is one of the foremost scholars on the First Amendment in the country. He's written over 75 law review articles, over 80 op-eds, and is the author of the legal textbook, The First Amendment and Related Statutes. Interestingly, prior to his becoming a titan of the First Amendment world, Professor Volok worked for 12 years as a computer programming child prodigy. He graduated from UCLA with a degree in math computer science when he was just 15 years old. But after giving up computer programming and graduating from law school, he went on to pursue a legal career and clerked for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the U.S. Supreme Court and for Judge Alex Kaczynski on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And we'll talk about that latter experience at the beginning of our show. Many of you requested Professor Volok as a so-to-speak guest, so I was happy to oblige. The theme or topic of our discussion today is new frontiers in the First Amendment. Since Professor Volok often works at the cutting edge in First Amendment law, I wanted to pick his brain on some of the areas where courts and scholars see the potential for expanding First Amendment protections in the future. Or, alternatively, where new technological developments might pose challenges to existing First Amendment protections. We talk about augmented reality and virtual reality, uh, which are topics that I should say Professor Volok has written extensively about on the Volok conspiracy and in law review articles. We also look at Packingham v. North Carolina, a case currently before the United States Supreme Court dealing with registered sex offenders' access to social media. And then we also turn our heads to occupational speech and the regulation of so-called prediction markets or information markets. Bookending our conversation is a brief discussion of Professor Volokh's background and what he learned during his clerkships, as I mentioned. And at the end of the discussion, I asked Professor Volokh what First Amendment issues he is particularly interested in at the moment. I spoke with Professor Volok over the phone. He was in Los Angeles. I was in New York City. So if it sounds like he's talking to me over the phone, it's because he is. Now, without further ado, I bring you Professor Eugene Volok. Professor Eugene Volok, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks very much for having me. 
So the topic of our discussion today is, of course, new frontiers in the First Amendment, places where First Amendment protections can be expanded uh, in the courts right now or in you know foreseeable cases in the near future. But when I talk with a new guest, I always like to figure out how they got from here to there. That is, from whatever they were doing before they became interested in free speech issues uh, to their current, you know, practices or job in the First Amendment realm. And you have a, a unique backstory. You were sort of a math and computer whiz growing up. Your family came to the United States from Ukraine the former USSR at the age of seven, and you graduated from UCLA with a degree in mathematics and computer science at the age of 15. At that age, did you have any interest in the issues that you work in now, or did you see yourself working in math and computer programming the rest of your life? Well, both. Uh, uh, I uh, was a computer programmer. I was into computer programming. I uh, thought I would continue being a computer programmer. But sure, I was interested in constitutional law and especially First Amendment law. It's glamorous. It's exciting. It's in the news. Uh, I was like, actually, like many computer people that, that uh, I know, I was interested in um, uh, these kinds of matters. As in fact, in a democratic society, you could, you'd expect that a lot of people would be interested in law, just as lay people. But you came from a non-democratic society, and well, did that influence it at all? You know, it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. Um, uh, you can speculate, but unfortunately, my parents uh, neglected to have an identical twin uh, who would uh, uh, who would be like me in all respects, but would be raised in a different place or anything else that would allow us to spin out the counterfactuals. Um, I am who I am, and uh, it may be that my uh, first seven years in Russia, or more likely that what I heard from my parents about their life as adults in Russia, uh, might have influenced me. But uh, I think I was much more influenced by America and by my... Uh, uh, by the the years that, that I had by then spent in America uh, growing up. What was the moment and what was your thinking when you decided you were going to go to law school and that you were going to put your success as a computer programmer aside and enter into the world of constitutional law? Yeah, um, yeah I, uh, uh, I was happy as a computer programmer. If you told me I couldn't be a law professor or a lawyer, uh, uh, then computer I would try to get back into being a computer programmer, although I hear computer programming has moved on a bit since I, uh, since I seriously did it last. Uh, but uh, uh, I think when I was maybe 19, 20, I think around the same time that many people make the decision to go to law school, I'd been working as a computer programmer. I'd been quite successful as it, but I, I realized that I wanted to lead more of a semi-public life. I wanted to participate in these policy debates. I wanted to uh, testify before uh, legislative bodies. I wanted to file briefs before courts. I wanted to appear on talk shows. Did, wasn't thinking about podcasts at the time, but I probably should have been. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and I realized that in America, rightly or wrongly, uh, it's mostly lawyers who do that. So I decided to try it. And, you know, I took the LSAT. And my view was if I did badly on the LSAT, that would be a message. But I did well on the LSAT. Went to law school, and I was prepared to drop out of law school if I did badly during my first year? Why switch from being a, a uh, successful programmer and programmer who's good at what he does uh, to a lawyer who isn't successful or who isn't good, as good at what he does? But then I did well there. So 
I kept uh, the experiment kept working for me, so I kept with it. Do you do you still follow um, what's happening in the world of computer science or computer programming? And is that an interest of yours? The the intersection between that and the First Amendment? Uh, yes. Um, the code is speech debate, for example. Right. Uh, uh, I've uh, done a considerable amount uh, with internet law, uh, which is kind of a an odd sort of field. It's mostly copyright law, um, uh, tort law, First Amendment law, as applied to the Internet. From a purely legal perspective, it turns out that the rules are mostly medium independent. So it really is more a reflection of my interest in the underlying fields, such as First Amendment law. And given that so much of uh, a speech these days is on the Internet, naturally, Internet law would be an important part of that. But there are also some particular twists uh, uh, that uh, are affected by the medium, and I've been following those. So it's a combination of my interest uh, uh, in uh, the First Amendment, uh, my interest in computers, and the fact that, uh, you know, you don't have to be a uh, a computer programmer to understand Internet law. Um, uh, It's not rocket science. It's not even computer science. uh, uh, But at the same time, uh, it does help a bit just to have the confidence to say, yeah, I understand what they're talking about there. Uh, So as a result, I have gotten into some um, uh, technology law debates. I I have co-written an article that's going to be coming out in a few months on law and virtual reality and augmented reality. I've actually gotten very interested in virtual reality recently, Um, although uh, my next project on it has little to do with law as such and more with how VR will change change society, uh, which I think is a more interesting uh, interesting aspect. Again, there we don't really need to understand computer programming or computer science, uh, but under- understand the potential of this computer-mediated technology. Well, one of the f- topics I want to discuss with you on this podcast is virtual reality. Another topic is uh, the Packingham v. North Carolina case. Both have intersections with technology. But before I get there, I want to ask you about your experiences clerking for Judge Kaczynski and uh, Judge, uh, former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. I, I have some friends who clerked for Kaczynski, and they say that it's quite the experience. I, I want, I'm interested in what you thought about those experiences and what you learned from them. Totally. Yeah, Judge Kaczynski is uh, one of the most brilliant judges on the uh, federal bench. Uh, he is... Uh, He's on the Ninth, Ninth Circuit, Ninth yeah. Circuit Court of Appeals, so that's an intermediate uh, uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, uh, and uh, he is... Uh, brilliant, beautiful writer, and a very good teacher of writing. Uh, So really, most of what I know about legal writing, I learned from him. And I went into law school with some experience in writing, writing about computers. And people had told me that I was a good writer, based on my articles uh, about computers. Turns out that uh, uh, being a good writer for a computer programmer is a pretty low bar. We computer programmers have a reputation as not being very good writers in English. (laughs) Um, uh, But I... It was when I went to clerk for Judge Kaczynski that I realized just how much I had left to learn. Uh, And uh, I learned a lot of it there. Um, One works very, very hard uh, for the judge, um, 80, 90, 100 hours a week. Yeah, all through the night, and you're at his beck and call, I hear. uh, Right, but uh, but, uh, there's a payoff, and the payoff is that uh, through all of the drafts that he puts you through, all of the extra polishing, extra work, um, uh, one learns a great deal about what it takes to write, what it takes to persuade. Ultimately, what lawyers do is persuasion. He, He used to tell us persuasion is the lawyer's art. 
and uh, uh, you, pretty much all we have to persuade is words. And using words effectively, especially in writing, is very difficult. People, I think, don't appreciate just how difficult it can be. Uh, but um, uh, he he taught me a tremendous amount about that, about legal strategy. Uh, but uh, and uh, it, it was a, it was a fabulous experience, one of the best years of my life. And my life has had many good years. And a lot of clerks that worked for J- Judge Kaczynski then go on to the Supreme Court as well. And does that have something to do with the rigor of clerking for Judge Kaczynski? Yeah, absolutely. I think many Supreme Court justices uh, realize that when they take a Kaczynski clerk to work for them, um, uh, that clerk will be already well-trained. Well, great. So let's move on then now to the main topic of this conversation, which is new frontiers in the First Amendment, an exploration of some of the places where theoretically First Amendment protections could get expanded. And I'm glad that we touched on the intersection between the First Amendment and technology already, because logically, many of these places, many of these places where there's room for expansion happen within the technological space or or places that have something to do with technology. And I want to begin by talking about this Packingham v. North Carolina case, which you and I believe your Scott and Cyan Bannister First Amendment Clinic have become involved in at the amicus brief stage, um, dealing with a law in North Carolina uh, that came out in 2008, which prohibits any registered sex offender from accessing any website that also allows people under the age of 18 to make accounts or become members. And it has this additional restriction uh, that it prohibits access to registered sex offenders to any website that derives revenue from advertising, has the functions that facilitate the social introduction of two or more people, and then allows users to create personal profiles, email accounts, or post information on message boards. Now, this case was argued in front of the Supreme Court, I believe, on February 27th of this year. There's no decision in it yet. But why did you become interested in this case? Uh, Well, uh, part of it is that uh, I teach first of an amicus brief clinic, and uh, uh, that's something that requires cases and uh, preferably interesting cases uh, uh, that students will enjoy working on. So when I saw uh, saw this case, I saw it as an opportunity to uh, to get my students involved just for the pedagogical value. But I also thought that it was a great case for me to be involved in. Uh, and uh, uh, the brief we filed wasn't when the Supreme Court uh, was hearing the case as such. It was when the Supreme Court was considering uh, whether uh, uh, to hear the case. Uh, and uh, uh, that, I think, is, an, is a context in which uh, amicus briefs, a friend of the court briefs, can be especially helpful, uh, because the court is asked to hear literally about 8,000 cases each year, and it hears about 80. So that's 1% of all the cases it's asked to hear. And an amicus brief at that stage can be really helpful for signaling to the court that this is an important case that's worth the court's time. And, and you have a special cachet with the court, given your involvement or founding of the Vola conspiracy, which is with the Washington Post right now. And anyone that follows the court knows that the justices and their clerks pay close attention to the issues that you and your fellow writers are talking about. Well, it's, I know you probably won't admit to that, but it's uh, you know uh, I'm I'm 
skeptical the degree to which uh, to which this matters. I think the justices are more interested in first, or justices and the law clerks, especially at the uh, at the petition stage, in seeing that there's a brief. In seeing, I mean, I do think it's helpful that the brief is signed by somebody who is knowledgeable in the field. Uh, in my case, I'm a First Amendment scholar. You can imagine that briefs in antitrust cases signed by someone who's a professor of antitrust law. Um, uh, but also, then they looked at the merits of the brief and uh, uh, looked to see if it's persuasive, and we hope ours was persuasive. Um, but Packingham is an interesting case because it really does involve uh, a, uh, both a general First Amendment question uh, but also one that does play out a little differently in the Internet context. And, um, so the, uh, to, in my view, the most important question there is when the government uh, imposes restrictions on people, even so-called content-neutral ones, not ones that target a particular speech based on its viewpoint or subject matter, but rather are concerned with things independent of the content of the speech. In, in uh, the North Carolina case, the theory was that uh, um, uh, they're concerned about uh, uh, sex offenders uh, accessing these uh, sites and seeing profiles of minors uh, in a way that makes it easier for them to then uh, um, uh, uh, try to seduce the minors and, and have sex with them. Um, so even when the government imposes these content-neutral restrictions, the court has long said that the law must leave open ample alternative channels. Uh, so it may be okay to restrict the size of a demonstration uh, in order to avoid it from um, blocking traffic, but you can't restrict demonstrations altogether because that won't leave open ample alternative channels. Uh, uh, so the question is, how does this play out with regard to Internet media? Because really this uh, uh, law uh, ended up uh, uh, barring people from using Facebook, uh, from using Twitter, from using all sorts of other such sites. Which have become ubiquitous in our life at this point. We use them to you know, coordinate events. We use them to find jobs. Right, right. And... Uh, uh, and um, uh, Justice Alito um, <clears throat> asked an interesting question in oral argument. He said, look, uh, in, in 2003, before there was a Facebook, or before um, uh, 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 Facebook was, was created and became as big as it is now, uh, people couldn't access uh, Facebook because it didn't exist, and yet somehow they managed to interact just fine, and they managed to gather information to speak just fine. And one could extend it more broadly back in 1993 when, to the extent there was an Internet, it was nothing like what we see today. Um, there were apparently ample channels for speech. Uh, isn't that enough to say that uh, restricting someone's access to this medium, which is not really necessary in order to live uh, and in order to speak, uh, uh, does leave open ample alternative channels, all the media that we have had for decades or centuries before? And I think the answer is no. I think that uh, as the world changes, um, uh, the, the uh, First Amendment rights, I think, in principle stay the same, uh, but, they end, but in practice they end up changing to include all the new media that develop. Uh, so it's true that back in 1990, let's say, nobody had the right to use Facebook because there was no Facebook. Uh, but uh, uh, once a particular medium becomes sufficiently important and uh, uh, important both for people who want to communicate but also people who want to, uh, who want to acquire information, for example, there are a lot of political campaigns whose main campaign web pages are on Facebook. You can't access 
that the information from those campaigns anyway other than through Facebook. So once uh, uh, once um, uh, something becomes a medium becomes sufficiently common and important, then uh, restrictions on that medium indeed should be seen as not leaving open ample alternative channels. Uh, interesting example, I think, of how the underlying principles. Uh, of the law generally remain the same independent of medium. Uh, but the way they apply uh, in particular cases may be sensitive to how the medium operates. Are there any restrictions in the broader world, not the online world, the broader world, that are written as broadly for sex offenders as the this North Carolina law is? Yes. Uh, there are, for example, many uh, laws that restrict sex offenders from uh, living within uh, within some distance of a school, let's say, or a playground. There are laws that restrict the sex offenders going to places where children congregate. Uh, now, we don't, may not see them as speech restrictions, but of course they are, uh, because uh, if you can't go to a place where children congregate, you can't go and speak there. You can't go and give a talk at a, um, a, at, a at a private school, let's say. You can't go just to converse with someone there, uh, that is to say, go and ask questions. Let's say you become a, a journalist. There are places you can't go to interview subjects. Uh, so there are pretty substantial restrictions on sex offenders, ones that probably affect their daily lives more than, uh, more than this law does, um, and ones that affect their speech to a considerable degree. Well, I know judges don't write decisions in this way, but if your side wins this case, if Packingham wins this case, could that open up avenues for, um, you know, eliminating some of the restrictions on registered sex offenders more broadly in the real world? Um, well, uh, I think a lot depends on how, uh, how the opinion is written. Uh, but it certainly is possible that to the extent that the uh, restrictions on sex offenders uh, uh, um, uh, uh, do apply to their offline speech, uh, then yes, they could say, well, that restriction is too broad. Uh, uh, that restriction has to be recrafted in order to exclude uh, exclude the speech. At the same time, you could uh, you could imagine that uh, uh, um, that the Supreme Court's rationale would be, look, Facebook. Twitter and such are so important these days uh, that that's what makes the restriction uh, too broad. And maybe the, the offline restrictions would be seen, at least as to speech, as narrow enough that they might be constitutional. So it's hard to predict unless one actually, until one actually sees the opinion. We had a conversation with Bob Corn Revere, who you might be familiar with uh, on this podcast, uh, I believe a month or two ago. And in that, we take a look at the past hundred years and the various technologies that have been developed during that time and the fight that many free speech advocates had to partake in in order to get First Amendment protections applied to those media, including film, broadcast television, the internet, computer programming code. We look at also newer technologies such as the iPhone. But I want to talk with you now about some of the potential First Amendment implications in the virtual reality space. You say, we, we have these protections for speech offline. We can't draw meaningful distinctions between offline speech and online speech in many cases. The First Amendment applies whether you're online or offline. And with social media becoming so ubiquitous now, 
we need to think of this, I, I don't want to say as a public forum, um, because it's often regulated by non-governmental actors, but as important to our life as speaking in a public square in many spaces. And the world of virtual reality hasn't become that yet, or the world of augmented reality. And you define virtual reality in one of your pieces as an artificial construct with bits cobbled together to produce sounds and images that we observe. And you define augmented reality um, as vivid overlays of realistic images of people and objects over the reality that we're currently operating in. Could it be the case that 10 years from now, augmented reality becomes so ubiquitous in our life that restrictions on it would be a restriction on speech that almost prevents us from partaking in the life that almost everyone else is living or operating in the marketplace of ideas? Well, I think we need to distinguish two kinds of restrictions. One, which I think you're getting at, is the restrictions that target particular people. So imagine somebody was convicted of some crime in the past. It could be a sex offense, but it could be something else, some violent crime, some fraud, something like that. And uh, the law says, look, even when you're, when you're out of prison, even when you're off probation, you can't use, let's think of a Google Glass type uh, uh, glasses. The Google Glass didn't succeed, but I, but I think that the medium at some point will. Um, you can't use them in order to uh, augment your information about the world, because that would make it too easy for you to commit future crimes. Uh, that's an interesting question, and it would be similar to the Packingham question of the of to what extent uh, uh, is it permissible for the government to deny people access to certain kinds of information technology that's available to others. Um, but there's also uh, a broader question of what if the government says, look, nobody or maybe nobody except the police can use certain AR technology. So one thing that, for example, people talk about it would be useful to have on your Google Glasses or post-Google glasses, is uh, face recognition software. Uh, I, uh, I believe Google may have not allowed that as an application, but at some point somebody is going to develop this because it's tremendously useful. Uh, it's, uh, you just think of all the times you've forgotten people's uh, names and it was embarrassing and uh, maybe bad for business if it was in a business context. Uh, and... Uh, now imagine an application where you look at somebody and it tells you who they are, tells you a little bit about them, reminds you of the circumstances of the last meeting and the like. It could be particularly useful for people also who suffer from particular um, uh, uh, psychological conditions. There are people, for example, who have something which is sometimes called face blindness. Uh, the part of their brain that recognizes people's faces just doesn't work very well or doesn't work at all. Uh, so as a result, they find it even harder than uh, normally absent-minded people like me uh, to remember people's names. Well, this could be very, very useful for that. Now imagine that the government says, well, because of our concern about privacy, and privacy is a mushy term, but some people do view it broadly enough to cover this, we're going to forbid uh, this kind of software. Or we're going to allow you to have face recognition software, but we, we won't allow you to run an extra application which in real time looks up people's criminal records based on the face recognition and tells you whether this person you're meeting has some sort of criminal, uh, criminal past. Um, and uh, uh, people, some people say, well, wait a minute, this affects my right not so much to speak, but my right to acquire information. It's kind of like telling me I can't look things up in certain books or in certain directories. Uh, so by denying me my right to 
gather this information, which may also be relevant to my speaking journalists, for example, would surely find this very useful for stories they're writing, you are interfering with my um, with my First Amendment rights. So I, I think that's the kind of thing where, even if it's imposed equally on everybody, that might raise interesting constitutional questions. What about crimes of sight or sound, which you discuss in your article, things like in virtual reality spaces or in augmented reality spaces, can you disturb the peace? What about indecent exposure to children or changing people's avatars in a defamatory way, impersonation, parody, protest, slander? How might these be implicated in uh, the world of virtual reality or augmented reality? And in your article, you also talk about something really interesting on page 54, where you mentioned that the Supreme Court has stated that child pornography can be banned if it involves actual children because of the, you know, the production involves harming children, but that the display of speech that was not created as a result of the criminal conduct can be protected. So you have some interesting challenges here, and you you see this parallel in the video game world as well, where you have you know games like Grand Theft Auto, where you are able to engage in virtual you know play criminal conduct, but that's usually not involving other players augmenting their reality. Right. So let's focus for now on virtual reality, just because it makes it, makes it simpler uh, and makes some of these issues particularly crisp. So virtual reality, you're sitting in your home, you've got your VR headset on, it feels like you're in uh, a different place physically, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but you're actually sitting there, you don't have to worry about it driving into somebody because your Google glasses are showing you some video while you should be paying attention to the road. Um, so if you think about it, uh, uh, that's, a good, that's a good way, being in your home uh, with VR is a good way of, um, of protecting yourself against crime, right? As long as you have a good home security system, nobody can really kill you unless, well, uh, unless there's some uh, some unusual technology in your VR set that some hackers can break into, I suppose. Uh, nobody can rape you. Nobody can uh, rob you in the sense of uh, uh, stealing things from you through, through physical violence or threat of physical violence. Um, so it's in many ways a much safer place. Uh, I think that may be a reason why many people would prefer to be in VR. Um, uh, imagine, for example, that you want to go out drinking with some friends and set aside going out drinking because you want to meet new friends and have physical contact with them, if you know what I mean. But let's say that you just, uh, um, you just, want, to drink, uh, you just want to drink with your friends. Um, and uh, uh, you, you might say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out at home uh, in, my, um, uh, in, in my own study. I'm going to get beer from my own fridge, a lot cheaper than at the bar. And I don't have to worry about driving drunk. I don't have to worry about being mugged in the alley outside the bar. It's a safe place, VR is. But you can imagine certain kinds of things that really are crimes still in the VR. Um, uh, so uh, so uh, some of them, of course, uh, are crimes such as fraud, or you could have torts such as libel, where really it's the, they're technology independent. You can try to cheat somebody out of money uh, in VR just as you can through a letter or an email. Um, uh, but uh, uh, let's take as an example, as I mentioned, disturbing the peace. Uh, so if I were to, sh- to scream very loudly outside uh, on, on a street, 
um, then at some point somebody will call the police and the police will come and say, look, you've got to stop or else we'll arrest you for disturbing the peace. Let's say that I am screaming very loudly in a VR space, which is to say I'm just sitting in my own home, but it's being projected into the space that I'm visiting as a result of the software on my computer and in the VR computer and in the computers of all the other people who are hearing this and whose enjoyment of VR is interfered with. Well, there I think that, uh, that on the one hand, it's highly unlikely you're going to get the police involved in this. Uh, for various reasons, one of which is that uh, it, it's, uh, I may very well be in a completely different place, uh, a completely different city or country from uh, from where people are are complaining. Yeah, you call this the Bangladesh problem in your article. Exactly. So if if I'm in Bangladesh and somebody from Omaha wants wants me extradited to face Nebraska justice for my crime of disturbing the peace, I suspect that the police and prosecutors will say, not worth our time. But also there, what we have is we have what I, we call technologically enabled self-help measures. Uh, so basically, I can just, uh, uh, or if, if somebody is writing uh, uh, the VR software, it makes sense for them to have a mute button where anybody can mute anybody else, but only from the, for their own perspective. So if somebody doesn't like that I'm screaming or even just doesn't like what I'm saying or just doesn't like me, they can hit mute and they will no longer hear my avatar, hear anything that I have to say. And we have that in the video game world now. I, I play video games and if you have an obnoxious person sitting on their headset, you can you can mute them. But what if you get into a situation where virtual reality and augmented reality becomes such a part of our lives that muting someone is effectively deleting them from your world? And doing this in the video game world is similar, too, because you don't really know this person and there's there's very low cost to actually doing it. But have you seen the, the TV show Black Mirror? Um, you know, everybody tells me to watch it. Uh, <laughs> I, I watched one episode and wasn't terribly thrilled, but people say, oh, oh, give it another chance. So I probably will. Yeah. And there's this episode that uh, includes John Hamm, actually, the, the Don Draper from Mad Men, where... I believe, if I'm remembering it correctly, they've created this augmented reality world, and his girlfriend, you know, so fed up with their relationship, deletes him from her world. You know, and it creates this interesting dynamic where if we do have this technology at a certain point, every time you get into a confrontation with someone, you have this easy out way to delete them from ever having to encounter you ever again. Right. I think it's an interesting social question, how that will affect social interactions. I don't think it's a terribly interesting legal question. Uh, there's a right to speak, but there's no right to force people to listen. Uh, it may be, in fact, that, that, uh, uh, this, um, that in a sense, kind of the optimal, perfect free speech world would be one like the VR world. Uh, it's too bad that we haven't had this mute button for people all along, but now we will, and it'll be better. Um, then, among other things, I think there'll be important, uh, important controls on that. Uh, that uh, I shouldn't say controls. Uh, uh, that, that suggests top-down, but I mean important, uh, important checks on that as a practical matter. Uh, that uh, if I find that every time I don't like what somebody is saying, I mute them, I'm going to end up with a bunch of socially awkward situations. Other people who are involved in the conversation uh, will end up being annoyed with me. Um, and uh, so as a result, uh, as a result, that's probably something that I'll save either for people who are total strangers whom they have no reason to want to listen to, 
Um, uh, or if I do apply this to acquaintances or friends whom I want to keep as acquaintances or friends, it's something that I'll end up doing, try to do very subtly. You have this interesting question. If it does become so ubiquitous, what if you have a situation where public officials like Donald Trump delete people from their augmented reality? I, I could see Congress in that case creating laws preventing public figures from blocking people from their reality. I don't think that there should be any such such laws. If Donald Trump decides he wants to just always completely ignore any questions from a particular reporter, even to the point of uh, of just not even hearing them, it seems to me he should be entitled to do that. And the constraints in that are political, uh, that people might mock him for it. Maybe some of those questions will be questions that would have been helpful for him to hear. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, but I don't think he has any obligation to to hear them any more than he has obligation to pay attention to them. Right now, we have our own ways of muting. It's, it's just not very effective. We just try to zone the person out. Yeah, Sometimes we succeed. Uh, I don't think that's something that that should be that should be uh, called for um, uh, legal regulation. You do have this situation, though, where you have the protection within the First Amendment to petition your government for a redress of grievances. And if you want to stop by your congressman's office, you're, you, know, you have the right to do that. Or if you have, the, you have the right to show up at their town hall meetings. And if they de- delete you from your reality, there really is no avenue for you anymore to well, petition. Oh, I, I, I don't think that's right. Uh, you have a right to petition the government for redress of grievances, which means you can't be punished for such a petition. So you, they can't say, oh, you are, you are circulating this petition or you're sending us these, uh, these questions or arguments. Or we're going to throw you in jail for that. And in fact, actually, historically, that's what the British government sometimes did, <laughs> uh, is it thought that petitions were threatening to its authority. So it would criminally punish people for, for their petitions. Uh, but the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that the right to petition does not include uh, the right to get people to listen. So, um, in fact, if you show up at your uh, congressman's office, he has no legal obligation uh, to hear you. And, in fact, as a practical matter, he probably, there are probably constraints on, uh, on how many people he can hear in, uh, in any day. Uh, rather, it's a political obligation. If he gets a reputation as someone who turns away his constituents routinely, he might not stay congressman for long. Uh, but that's the way it's constrained. Um, uh, likewise, you can show up at a town hall, and yeah, you um, at least, well, depending on how the town hall is organized, you might not be excludable from it, but the congressman could say, I, I, I don't want to respond to that question. I think it's rude. I think it's foolish. I want to move on. And again, the constraints on that are political. Uh, he can't be sued for that or can't be successfully sued for that, but he might lose re-election if uh, he gets a reputation as someone who keeps ignoring constituents. Uh, and I think that the same should continue here. I don't see any reason why government officials should be legally required to listen to people, given that even if they are re- legally required to listen to people, it's not like they can never be legally required to pay attention to them. Yeah, you're drawing the distinction here between negative rights, which prevent the government from doing something, and positive rights, which right. people argue right. impels the government to right. do something. I think it's an important distinction. I, I think it is sometimes somewhat overstated. Certain negative rights have to carry with them certain kinds of positive rights. So, for example, if the government were to say, look, we're just not going to protect speakers against a violent attack, that is an intrusion on free speech. It may be unconstitutional, especially if it's a content-based decision, but at the very least, it's contrary to 
important free speech principles. But yeah, I don't think that, that there is a positive right to have people listen. In fact, they maybe have a constitutional right not to be forced to listen, at least in certain circumstances. Well, in the next topic that I want to move to, we have the government punishing uh, someone for actually petitioning them for redress of grievances. I'm talking here about a recent lawsuit filed by the Institute for Justice against the Oregon State Board of Examiners for Engineering and Land Surveying, in which their client, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Mats Jarlstrom, a, he is an engineer, he has an engineering background, and he had looked at the formula that determines how long yellow lights last um, before it turns into a red light. And now with the advent of red light cameras and people potentially getting punished uh, for running red lights, he wanted to see that there was adequate enough, adequate time to um, go through a yellow light. And he found that the old formula that I think comes from 1959 didn't take into account that when you're making a right-hand turn, you need more time at a yellow light because it takes you longer to get through it. And so he ran the formula and actually talked with some of the people involved with creating that 1959 formula and wrote to the Oregon State Board of Examiners for Engineering and Land Surveying and said, hey, we have these red light cameras. We have a situation where the formula doesn't account for the longer, the more time that's needed to take a right-hand turn. And for this, for talk, merely sending a new formula or criticizing that formula, the the Oregon State Board fined him $500 under the um, rationale that he doesn't have a degree in electrical engineering or he's not a licensed, he does have a degree in electrical engineering from Sweden, but he doesn't ha- he's not a licensed electronical, uh, electronic en- engineer and therefore, you know, cannot talk to the, <laughs> talk to the government about, about this formula. And this brings up the intro- interesting question of the licensing of occupational speech. And I wanted to get your thoughts there because you have a lot of government boards, not only in cases like this, but also, you know, regulating things like advice, nutritional advice online. The Institute for Justice litigated a case in North Carolina about that, but also tour guides. And this implicates commercial speech. I guess all this implicates implicates commercial speech. You have cities like Charleston, South Carolina licensing tour guides, Savannah, Georgia licensing tour guides. And what are the tour guides doing? They're just speaking. They're telling a story. So I wanted to get your thoughts about that because this seems like a space where there could be not only an expansion of speech protections, but also probably the expansions of economic liberty protections for those who care about that sort of issue. Oh, right. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting and important area, made especially interesting by the fact that the Supreme Court has barely touched on it. Uh, The Supreme Court has uh, given us a good deal of information on when speech can be punished on the grounds that it's libelous or on the grounds that it incites violence. But when it comes to speech by professionals, the Supreme Court has, has not really discussed it, even though such restrictions are commonplace. Uh, so, for example, the very fact that you need a license in order to be a psychotherapist, even when all you do is talk to people, or you need a license in order to be a lawyer, uh, and not just in order to appear in court as a lawyer, but even just to give people advice as a lawyer. So um, the commercial speech issue, I think, is something of a red herring here. Uh, Commercial speech is one of those legal terms like so-called actual malice that's quite misleading. 
um, uh, you, uh, commercial speech as defined by the court is basically commercial advertising. It is speech that is uh, aimed at persuading people to buy a product or a service. Uh, and uh, uh, speech by tour guides, let's say, setting aside the original pitch, oh, come here, uh, uh, come to us, pay us this amount of money, we'll give you a tour of, uh, uh, of Washington, D.C. Um, setting that aside, the actual speech on the tour is not commercial speech. It may be speech that is sold in commerce in the sense that it's speech for which people are paid money, but the same is true of, uh, uh, of um, uh, a book or a movie. Uh, those are also speech sold in commerce, but that doesn't strip them of full First Amendment protection newspapers. Uh, so in any event, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's not really the question here. Uh, rather, the question is to what extent can speech of professionals be regulated uh, generally speaking, it's said in order to protect clients or prospective clients or others from uh, deception or from incompetence on the part of the professional. Um, and uh, um, uh, it's Again, the Supreme Court has never really told us what the rule is. However, one thing that it has suggested is that uh, um, if there is, or to the extent that there are constraints that can be placed uh, uh, on professional client speech, it has to be limited to professional client speech. It's either speech to a client or possibly speech on behalf of a client. Uh, but once the professional is speaking to the public at large uh, and not taking a client's affairs in hand, uh, then uh, that person is as protected as, as anybody else. And that's what I think is in play in the Yarlstrom case. So one classic example is this podcast, right? I am uh, talking about law, I'm expressing views about law, and I'm using my knowledge as a lawyer and uh, my credentials as a lawyer and law professor. But while I'm licensed to practice law in California, I'm not licensed to practice law in any of the other states in which this podcast will be heard. Um, so imagine a state bar were to go after me and say, oh, you are uh, doing lawyering without a license. Or let's say I, just did, I wasn't a, a member of any state bar. Yeah, some law professors, even very knowledgeable ones, are not. Well, then they could say, you don't have a license from anybody. And I think the answer is, I don't need a license. Uh, that in order to speak about law generally, um, uh, as opposed to take a client's affairs in hand and give the client advice that's personalized to his own particular condition, um, if I'm speaking about law generally, I am fully protected in that. And I think that's enough to... Uh, uh, to uh, assure Yarlstrom of full protection. I should say my students and I at the uh, Bannister Clinic here at UCLA uh, uh, are uh, just finishing up an amicus brief uh, uh, supporting Yarlstrom uh, on that point. Uh, so, uh, so I think there uh, the Oregon Department is clearly overreaching. Likewise, there was a case in the Fifth Circuit where uh, there was a woman, Dr. Mary uh, Serafine, uh, who was uh, uh, um, running for the state senate and saying she was a psychologist. And she was a psychologist by training and by, by occupation, but she wasn't licensed because her degrees were in something else. Um, uh, so uh, uh, the, uh, um, the Texas Regulatory Board said, you can't call yourself a psychologist in this political campaign. And uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals, I think quite rightly, said, nope, that's an unconstitutional restriction, that she could quite reasonably be described as a psychologist. It's certainly not an outright lie. And to the extent that there's a worry that she's misleading the voters, the solution to misleading voters as opposed to clients 
is not in government regulation, but is in the public debate and marketplace of ideas. And uh, uh, perhaps her opponent, uh, who might say, aha, she's not telling you the full truth here, um, uh, if it turns out that her statement is indeed misleading. Uh, so, uh, so I think that's an area where professional speech has to be protected when there's no particular client involved. And the harder question is what happens if there is speech to a client? Uh, some government agencies basically take the view that any kind of restrictions on professional client speech are permissible. End of story. Um, but the 11th Circuit, for example, uh, in a recent decision in banks, so by all of the judges of the circuit and not just by three judges on a panel, decided nearly unanimously with only one dissenter that Florida could not uh, uh, impose certain restrictions on doctors talking to their patients about guns. Um, some people were concerned the doctors were uh, were uh, uh, saying things about guns to their patients, about supposed dangers of having guns in the home and such. There were unjustified and unsound, and I think those are actually reasonable concerns. There's certainly a good deal of so-called public health literature about gun uh, uh, issues that I think is uh, is just very badly done and reflects more prejudice than actual actual science. Uh, but um, uh, but the law would have uh, uh, potentially restricted doctors from even saying quite accurate things about uh, about gun storage or asking questions about whether the person uh, has guns, maybe preparatory to giving them advice. Oh, you know, uh, uh, if there's somebody in your home who is depressed, you should keep the gun locked up or something along those lines. Uh, that law, uh, the 11th Circuit said, re restricting such speech violated the First Amendment rights uh, of doctors even though it regulated professional client speech, that some kinds of regulation in professional client speech were okay, but others are not. Then there's some other interesting laws um, uh, where the decisions have come out the other way, possibly correctly, but it just shows the complexity of the problem. Uh, so um, there, uh, there are people who do, who, uh, do what they call um, a conversion therapy, where, it, uh, where if somebody who comes into the doctor and says, uh, I feel attracted to people of the same sex, but I don't want to. I want to be straight. I'm gay or I'm lesbian, but I want to be straight. Uh, that those doctors will cure the gay, as, as the, uh, as the uh, somewhat uh, parodying uh, uh, line for that is. Uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, some states, including my own California, have actually uh, banned such therapy, uh, at least as to minor patients, as to under uh, under 18 patients. And their view, uh, whether right or wrong, uh, is that that therapy is uh, just medically unsound. Uh, it hasn't been proven to to work, and in fact, it has the potential to uh, to cause real psychological damage and maybe increase the risk of suicide and the like. Uh, I, I believe there's one one city uh, that recently enacted a law that actually banned such therapy altogether, and not just for minors. Is that permissible? Uh, that kind of restriction permissible. Uh, obviously, if this were a restriction on, I don't know, use of electric shock therapy, well, that wouldn't be a First Amendment issue because it wouldn't be about speech, it would be about ele electric shocks. Uh, but, but the restriction extends also to just entirely the talking cure, psychotherapy um, uh, used uh, um, uh, in a way that, that solely consists of speech. I think the libertarian perspective would be, especially when adult patients are involved, let 
patients decide for themselves. And if uh, and just because the medical establishment thinks uh, that some treatment is ineffective and unsafe, well, it doesn't mean that that's right, so long as there's information given to the patients. But the law here hasn't always been libertarian, even when it comes to speech uh, in, the, in the professional client speech context. I think the issue that a lot of people have when thinking about this issue, and this isn't one that I've worked out for myself either, is you get the sense that some of these professions in which all that they do is engage in expressive conduct. You're talking about tour guides, you're talking about lawyers, you're talking about um, some sorts of doctors who don't do surgeries or don't perform any sort of surgeries. There's this distinction that the risk of some of the speech in those professions is different than the risk of the speech in other professions. Like, for tour guides, if you get a bad tour, that won't affect you in the same way that getting bad medical or legal advice would be. But you're, you're talking about still speech in all of those cases. So how does the government draw a meaningful distinction there? And I know there are some in the libertarian circles who would argue even against licensing of lawyers. Uh, I haven't seen much argument uh, for against licensing of doctors, although I'm sure that exists. How, how do you wrap your head around this and how do you draw... You know, what's what's the limiting principle here? Oh, right. I think that, that's a great question. That's something in the tour guide cases, our clinic also filed amicus briefs. Uh, um, and one of the things we said is that this is not commercial speech. It should be fully protected speech. But it's also not professional client speech because for two reasons. One is it's not like the, the tour guides are taking a person's um, affairs in hand the way that, let's say, a travel agent might. Uh, if somebody said, goes to a travel agent, I don't think they do it much these days in the age of the Internet, but they used to and said, plan out a, plan out a vacation for me. Um, tour guides aren't like that. Tour guides uh, uh, give, you, give you sort of a generic shtick. They may answer your questions, but uh, uh, they aren't there to consult with you on your, um, uh, on your questions. But even to the extent that they did, all that would be at stake is the cost of the tour and, uh, uh, and uh, the and your time. Uh, and that's not the sort of thing that we really need to protect people from, uh, the way that we might need to protect people from uh, treatments that may endanger their life or their health or their liberty in, in, um, the, uh, as to lawyers, or even large amounts of money as to, say, financial planners and the like. Uh, that there's really not a sufficient government interest in trying to protect people from shoddy tour guides. Now, maybe if uh, the concern is that the tour guides um, are, are driving the bus and don't know how to drive buses well, or that they don't know the uh, um, uh, which parts of the city are unsafe, uh, too, too much risk of crime, or something like that. Uh, uh, that would be a different matter, and uh, perhaps a regulation aimed solely at that might be permissible. Um, uh, but if the concern is people will just give people bad historical knowledge, that's and will waste their money, that's just not an adequate justification, I think. But it's true, then you'd have to draw the line. Yeah, uh, what's the test going to be there? Planners would be a different side of the line, lawyers on a different side, uh, and the law has to draw lines like that. Well, the Institute for Justice, as I'm sure you're aware, fought the licensing of tax preparers, too. Uh, I don't believe they did that on First Amendment grounds, um, and you could argue that the actual preparation of your tax return is, is non nonverbal conduct, uh, but giving someone advice, maybe, on their taxes? Right. I actually think that preparation of tax return is speech as well. It's something where you 
fill out information that you're going that somebody's going to send to yeah them. that's true uh but but it's also something that's very similar to to what lawyers do in fact there are tax lawyers who do that sort of thing uh, and likewise it's more broadly similar to what accountants do and in many situations uh, accountants at least ones who do certain kinds of things have to be licensed too so there is this broad libertarian question of the degree to which uh, such restrictions are either just wrong as a matter of first principles or ultimately counterproductive. Uh, that it may be that, uh, uh, so there, there are at least two versions of that. One is people in general would be better off uh, if they had access to a wide range of, uh, of uh, lawyers, let's say, licensed or unlicensed, uh, and um, uh, and then they decide for themselves who's good and who's bad. To be sure, they might not be great at that. Uh, one problem with professionals is the clients often can't evaluate firsthand the quality of the professional's work, but that's why there would be various certification organizations uh, that would say, uh, would say, well, we think this lawyer is really good, and those are the lawyers are not. And maybe ultimately that's going to be more reliable than just counting on whether this person has passed the bar and is a member in good standing uh, and has gotten a particular legal education because it's not like everybody who's a member of the bar is that good in the first place. So that's one version. A second version uh, is focused on the fact that very many lawyers uh, actually practice uh, 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 um, uh, on behalf of uh, business entities that uh, surely know how to get good good quality services. So if somebody wants to go to work for, uh, I, I don't know, for uh, Google as a lawyer, or wants to go to work for a uh, law firm who has Google as a client, do we really need to protect Google from shoddy lawyering by having a state bar this person should uh, should pass? No. Presumably, Google uh, is just uh, is, will be competent at uh, uh, hiring people who are uh, good lawyers, or maybe outsourcing that to law firms who would then dis- decide whether the person is a good lawyer. Just like we don't need to uh, license uh, computer programmers in order to protect Google from the risk of bad computer programming. Um, so uh, I think all those are good libertarian arguments. They're not First Amendment arguments as such. The First Amendment arguments would be focused on the question of to what extent does the First Amendment take these issues off the table as a constitutional matter when it comes to professional client speech. And I think the answer is courts are probably going to uh, allow some protections for speech to clients, but uh, also allow some restrictions aimed at trying to protect clients from shoddy work. And you, so you think the court will take up this issue soon? Well, I can't say that with any confidence. I, I would like the court, to, uh, the Supreme Court, to take up the issue because I think there's a, a, a more clarity that's needed. But at the same time, the court has been asked to take it up recently, and it hasn't. Uh, it's up to them to decide, and uh, my track record of predictions on that is pretty weak. <laughs> well, we, we were already over the amount of time you agreed to. There's one more topic I want to discuss if you still have five minutes. Sure. And this is the topic that also sort of falls within, perhaps, you might argue differently, the commercial speech realm. And this is the topic of prediction markets, often referred to as information markets or idea futures. Uh, these are you know, an emerging technology that allows thousands of people to join together to make predictions about the future in a market-based setting. When we think about, and you know, this often falls underneath um, regulations, regulating gambling. And in 2006, the United States government passed the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, which swept within its ambit, arguably, 
these sorts of markets. But there's there's a huge segment of the First Amendment community that thinks about these sort of novel and creative First Amendment questions that believes this is an infringement upon First Amendment rights because these markets create informational benefits for the public, whereas gambling on cards or horses, um, you know, as one person put it, merely sustains a personal proclivity or their games of chance. But these these uh, prediction markets force people to put their money where their mouth is. And you get because of that, because it eliminates or in many ways kind of eliminates the biases that are inherent enough. You get better predictions on things like who's going to win a presidential election, who's going to, uh, you know, what even what the weather is going to be, what what the um, outcome of almost any sort of political question can be, and that denying Americans the right to this more truthful information, or arguably more truthful information, or more sustainable, important information, is is a violative violation of their First Amendment rights. And I wanted to hear what your thought about this is. You know, uh, this is a great question, but I just haven't thought about it enough to uh, to, to have an informed answer. Um, there's no completely obvious answer because, after all. Here, it's not just speech. It is, the, it is, in fact, the transfer of money that's involved. Mm-hmm. And unlike in the context of tour guides and books, it's not just buying uh, speech with money. It is actually using, a, indeed, a form of gambling in order to get better information. Uh, not all things that we do in order to get better information are protected. For example, scientists can't say, well, we need to be able to conduct this otherwise illegal experiment because we'll learn good things from it. There are plausible arguments uh, uh, for protection here. So I think these are the great questions. I, I just don't feel comfortable uh, offering an answer without a lot more thought that I've given. It. Yeah, and I'm not sure that anyone, there's one article written about this. I'm not sure there are many people that have given this this topic a ton of thought. It's just something that you see sort of discussed after hours while you're drinking uh, you know, a beer, but it, it, it does have this interesting component where if you remove the money, the information becomes less valuable because the skin in the game is, mm-hmm. is pulled away. So, um, maybe something for our listeners to, to think about then. And I hope if, if your, your clinic ever does take up this issue that you'll be able to come back on this podcast sure. and discuss it with us. I want to end by asking you, um, Two quick questions that I, I try to ask most of our guests, which is the first one is what, what is your favorite uh, First Amendment or free speech figure? And this could be a jurist, a scholar, or you know, even a I, public commenter. I hate to pin myself down on one particular person. There are so many people who have done such interesting work, uh, uh, both on the court and uh, um, uh, and on lower courts and uh, uh, as, as academics and as lawyers. So, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't like questions about favorites in that respect. <laughs> well, is there, an, is there a, a question that you're grappling with right now or an article you're reading or book you're reading dealing with these issues that you find, fa- you find fascinating or you find yourself thinking about a lot right now? Well, I think that one important question, which I think we haven't yet really figured out the answer to, is what effective means is there of restricting, at least what the legal system has concluded, is punishable libel, which is to say, let's just take the the clearest core of it, knowing lies about people that damage their reputations. 
and not not primarily about government officials or other such, but like people people uh, uh, saying uh, people lying about uh, 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 business people with whom they've had a, a bad interaction, hmm. uh, deliberately saying things that are false, accusing them of crimes that they that the speaker knows they didn't commit just as a revenge or just as some uh, um, uh, something that uh, uh, that that lets them vent their frustrations uh, or sometimes it's about ex-lovers uh, or about uh, about uh, former friends and the like uh, so how can we effectively uh, prevent these kinds of libels uh, wh- without unduly restricting speech um, the Supreme Court has told us there are rules uh, uh, that allow this kind of restriction. So, for example, indeed, knowing lies that damage someone's reputation are constitutionally unprotected, even under New York Times versus Sullivan. In fact, even negligent errors uh, that uh, convey false information that damages a person's reputation may sometimes be uh, restrictable um, when they're said about private figures. But let's just focus on knowing lies. Substantively, the law tells us, yes, they are unprotected. But how, what can be practically done about them, especially with the Internet, uh, where uh, people can post these things anonymously or pseudonymously? Uh, people can post them um, uh, from uh, other jurisdictions, from other countries, uh, with, in which it's very hard to enforce American judgments. What practically can be done? I mean, one possible answer is nothing, and we should just sort of give up uh, any attempt to restrict libel. But I do think that uh, while some libertarians disagree with me on this, uh, uh, I uh, do think that the uh, uh, that our legal system has been wise in recognizing that one way in which you can uh, damage somebody and damage somebody wrongfully uh, is by uh, saying false things about them that injure their reputation, that make it uh, uh, harder for them to earn a living or to make friends or and the like. Um, so. But at the same time, some of the remedies that we've seen, for example, attempts to get injunctions to order Google to vanish certain pages on the grounds that they're libelous, uh, those, I think, are, uh, are unsound, uh, and, uh, uh, among other things, because it's often very hard to f- actually reliably figure out whether a statement is libelous or not, especially if the defendant can't easily be identified. Uh, so I think this is a huge problem to which we haven't yet figured out an answer. So you don't fall then into the libertarian camp that we should just scrap, and this isn't a widespread opinion amongst libertarians, but among some of them, uh, including people like Nat Hentoff and Justice Hugo Black, who didn't believe that America should have a defamation exception to the First Amendment. You don't fall into that camp, the idea being that you have a responsibility, and this is that some of the argument goes, for maintaining your reputation in the marketplace, and that these sort of laws... Um, lessen the burden on responsible citizens to maintain a sort of, you know, media literacy or um, civic literacy or literacy with when it comes to understanding the truth that you just don't accept claims at face value. You you wouldn't fall into that camp. Black uh, would have allowed uh, libel law in in some measure. In New York Times versus Sullivan, um, uh, he uh, specifically uh, argued that uh, there should be no libel laws as to public discussions of public affairs and public officials. Uh, but, uh, uh, and he said, an unconditional right to say what one pleases about public affairs is what I consider to be the f- minimum guarantee of the First Amendment. 
but uh, uh, he didn't say that about uh, about purely private libels, like uh, false statements about whether a private person uh, uh, was uh, unfaithful to, to, to his spouse or something along those lines. Uh, and it wasn't clear that that he would uh, have even said that with regard to uh, just criticisms of a business person, relatively low-level business person. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, there's a footnote in uh, New York Times' uh, The Sullivan Opinion by uh, uh, by uh, Justice Goldberg, which uh, Douglas joined. Uh, Justice Black didn't specifically, but uh, I think it's also implicit in, in his limitation to speech about public affairs, which says, yes, indeed, there we would be able to and we should draw the line between public and private uh, uh, concerned matters there. I'm not wild about such a line, but I do think it's noteworthy that no justice has said we should completely throw out libel law. Now, some libertarians have said that, uh, but if you look at sort of a standard, simple summary of, of libertarians' uh, perspectives, which is that people should not be able to use force or fraud against each other, a libel, especially knowing lies, is a form of fraud. Uh, um, uh, it's not the fraud in the sense that I'm trying to get a listener to uh, give me money on false pretenses, but I'm trying to get the listener to stop doing business with a third party on false pretenses. Uh, so as a matter of libertarian theory, it may very well be that libel laws are justifiable. And while it's true that I think it would be very good if all of us became more skeptical, we know there are limitations to human skepticism. As a result, uh, even if most listeners are pretty skeptical, they can be deluded by, uh, they can be deceived by these kinds of libels as well. So uh, I should say also I'm traditionalist enough, uh, sort of Burkean enough to think that uh, that a principle that has been such a big part of American law for so many centuries and has been endorsed so broadly I'm hesitant to just jettison altogether. I'm hesitant to say, oh, nope, nope, just completely reject libel law. Um, uh, and uh, uh, especially given the serious and unjustified harm that libel can cause. The problem, I think, is a practical one. What can one really do about this without unduly restricting protected speech? Yeah, and you wouldn't argue that we go so, as, so far as countries like England, which have very broadly written libel laws and a lot of plaintiffs in libel cases like to go there in order to forum shop because the laws are so, you know, I, I hate to say robust, but so plaintiff friendly. We interviewed, we interviewed Deborah Lipstadt on that, on, on, on this podcast, and she was involved with the David Irving Holocaust denial trial there in the, in the nineties and two thousands. I haven't made a close study of, uh, uh, um, British libel law, but indeed my sense is that British libel law, which is consistent with a traditional libel law, in fact, as a, in America, as it was up until the 1960s, it probably is, uh, uh, too reputation protective and not, not speech protective enough. But we have formal, at least libel rules that really are quite speech protective, not perfectly. Uh, but quite speech protective, uh, and the real question is how do you make them work? Uh, uh, how do you how do you assure plaintiffs who have very good cases of a remedy without uh, undermining speech of, uh, that that, uh, that is true or opinion or otherwise uh, otherwise constitutionally protected? Well, if the court uh, decides to take up a, a case. Uh, on this score. I hope you'll come back, Eugene. And I hope you'll come back if we ever see some movement or further discussion on the prediction markets uh, topic as well. I'd 
love, I'd love to talk more about this kind of stuff. This is what I do for a living. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think we have a lot of meat in this conversation for our listeners to chew on. So, uh, Professor Volok, thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, and thank you for having me. All the best. That was UCLA law professor Eugene Volok. To read his writings on Packingham v. North Carolina, or on virtual reality and augmented reality, or on occupational speech, please visit the Volok Conspiracy blog on the Washington Post's website. If you're interested in learning more about prediction markets and their intersection with the First Amendment, I highly recommend Miriam Cherry and Robert Rogers' paper. It's called Prediction Markets and the First Amendment, and it's in the University of Illinois Law Review. And if you Google it, it should be easy enough to find. This podcast was hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, edited by Aaron Reese, and co-produced by Matt Williams. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also send us feedback or recommend a guest for a future show by emailing us at so to speak at the fire.org. To call in a question for a future show, you can leave us a voicemail at 215-315-0100. Reviews help us attract new listeners to this show, so if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Or if reviews just aren't your thing, please tell a friend about the show or share the episode on Facebook and Twitter. And until next time, I want you all to keep free speeching.